0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology.
1: Devon Miller is an entrepreneur with more degrees than you can shake a stick at. We have a great talk about his startup and his career as a patent and trademark attorney, and how he combined these two interests, putting his law degree to good use by securing several patents for his startup, and how he turned this into his IP law firm to help others. He gives us some advice on how to navigate the confusing and complex global IP laws, and Devin also has some great resources available on his website. So if you're at that stage in your startup or thinking of securing the intellectual property for your idea, and you find this part of doing business as difficult to grasp as we do, then I think you'll enjoy this talk.
2: As a quick introduction to myself so um Devin miller so i am a lot of things um, but uh, education wise i've got four degrees which my wife always jokes is three degrees too many so electrical engineering degree a degree in mandarin chinese i've got a um, degree in a law degree um, and then i've got an mba a master's of business administration so i kind of like i had there several different interests for me they all mesh together well but uh several different degrees I have kind of two passions, so I've done several startups, small businesses, and I've also, um, as a full-time gig, I do uh, my, my law firm as well. So I uh, started my law firm about three years ago. It's with uh, intellectual property where it helps startups and small businesses with patents and trademarks.
1: Cool. So is that one degree per child?
2: <laughs> you know, I never put it together, but I guess I, I could just you out one degree, and give it up to each kid, and they'd be covered, but no, just... Uh, Ended up getting four. They all worked together well, and I enjoyed it. So it 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 wasn't. It was a spaced about over about nine and a half years. So I guess I have their and ten year old. So it was a, it was a, it was a similar timing anyway.
1: <laughs> That's a lot of degrees. So did you you, you spaced them out? Would you do them in any particular order? Is there is there a logical sense to, to, to what they were? had you not fully satisfied your university experience and needed to go back and get some more for a top up?
2: You know, it was it was straight through start to finish. So it was about nine and a half years and started with undergraduate and so I or with the I took a two year, two years off to do a religious mission for my church. So I did oh, wow. um nine and a half years. So I started, did a year of undergraduate Um, in electrical engineering and then decided to want to serve a religious mission for my church so Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or nicknamed the Mormons Um, so I went and actually served in Taiwan for a couple of years and that's where Mandarin Chinese comes in learned the language um, was in Taiwan for a couple of years I came back and said well i like to continue to do electrical engineering but I also you know like to continue to develop my language skills and uh, take it or take that on and so I added that on as a a second degree Um, when I got towards the end of electrical engineering I was really saying you know I like, I like electrical engineering, but I don't want to be an engineer in the sense that, you know, I don't want to, or with electrical engineering or with engineering in general, you work for a company for, you know, you're a very small cog in a big wheel. You have to be with the company for a, a, a while. You're working on one project for months or years at a time, and they really have any impact on the company. You have to be there for quite a long time to work your way up through the management. And I said, I don't want to do all of that. I want to be able to work on a lot of different projects, see a lot of different things. I want to have a variety. I want to be able to have a bit more of a control. Over my 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 path and my direction, so I was saying you no, know, kind of. As I got to the end of undergraduate, I was saying, well, I kind of had two passions. One, I loved startups, small businesses, kind of enticed to be an entrepreneur, do my own thing. And I also found the law to be fairly interesting, particularly with patents and trademarks and helping or protecting inventions and or building them as an asset. So rather than doing one or the other, I would just went and did a dual degree and uh, pursued them both at the same time. So that was a four-year program to get both of those degrees, and then I graduated, been doing startups. Uh, Startups is one job and uh, uh, being an attorney is another job. And so running two full-time jobs and having a great time at it.
1: So did you start doing the startups whilst you were still at university then?
2: I did. So the first, you know, I had a fun or a few just kind of fun hobby projects, but the first real startup I did was while I was doing um, the law degree and the MBA degree. So this is kind of set context at the time I was doing the dual degree. So studying law, studying the MBA, I was uh, doing about 20 hours as a law clerk. I'd had one two year old, and we just had a newborn. And amidst all of that, I, I, I saw it was either a poster or an email, and I can never remember which. There was kind of one of those scenes of, "Hey, come join a business competition." It's one of those, you know, multi, you know, disciplinary where you get different people, designers and engineers and business people and attorneys, and they kind of put you all together and you form a group. And so. I went in, form, or went in, not knowing anybody, joined the group, we formed one, we entered it in the first year, it was to make gym bags less smelly, and while it was kind of a cool idea, it didn't really go anywhere, we took second place, we all kind of went our merry way, but we were all juniors at the time, we came back as seniors or for our last year's school, so oh, we'd like to enter it again, so as we were, you know, saying, hey, we don't really want to continue to pursue the gym bag. Why don't we see if we can come up with a newer, better idea? So we were kind of brainstorming things. We had some really dumb ideas like self-packing boxes and other things that really would have never worked. But one of the things that I'd gotten into recently was um, with marathons. So I, I love to run. I usually run about eight out or eight miles each morning before I come into work. And so I'd been starting to run marathons. And wow. one of the things I learned is how important hydration is. And, you know, and I did a horrible job of being, or being well hydrated my first marathon, and so as I was walking home from one of our brainstorming ideas, I had the idea, wouldn't it be cool if you could have a watch that would tell you your hydration level? And this was in the days before Fitbit, before the Apple Watch, none of that had come out, and so that was the genesis of the idea. So I started working on that. My dad was also actually an engineer as well, so I went home over Christmas, started to build up a prototype with him entered into the business competition we took te- took second place again and that was I'm a little bit still bitter about that but that's a longer story but with all <laughs> that I bought or but we got to the end and I said hey I think this is a real business and so I bought out all the people that were the partners in the or the entered into the competition bought out their uh, rights to any of the intellectual property continued on with that as a business so that was kind of the genesis of probably my first real startup was why i was doing the mba and law degree started that business and that one's still around today it's pivoted a bit and still evolved and but still active and still uh, moving
0: forward that's cool did did you know that that tech was even possible to achieve you just or you know had an inkling that you can detect hydration levels through a watch or device of some sort or did you just say hey this is what I want to try let's see if we' figure it out
2: no when I first had the idea I had no idea no idea if it would work so I mean I mean I thought that there's yeah. at least you know maybe a possibility and the nice thing was is when I'd had the idea I was also, my dad was an electrical engineer, so he'd has um that's a similar background to mine, but he had been in the medical device for a lot of his career and so and he actually worked with LG Electronics over in Seoul Korea for a period of time. And so I knew that he knew a lot more than I did. So I kinda called him up and said, Well, I've got this business idea or you know, business competition idea. This is kind of what I'm thinking. Do you have any ideas as of how we do that? And so we kind of brainstormed mm. a bit back and forth and you know, had a few different ways and some of them we figured wouldn't work, and so We kind of nailed down what we thought might work, which just is a, you know, for the tech nerds out there, it's called bioimpedance, which runs a little electrical pulses through your body. You can't feel them, but it watches the electrical fluctuation of how much electricity your body absorbs. And then you can see based on that, how your hydration level is doing. And so that was kind of the genesis. So Mm -hmm. when I originally had the idea, I had no idea. But then as we started to whittle down, we kind of said, Hey, this is a reasonable possibility of way of work nobody's really tried it and it hasn't worked out but theoretically it should work so we mocked up a prototype and started testing it and saw some favorable results and continued on from there
0: that's cool it's kind of like those um the the the, the smart weights the way they send the current through your body and, and tech that so is it like probably getting off track here but i'm just i'm just super curious so what was it like two two watches on your on each wrist or something to send that that current through or
2: no so it is actually it's it's much smaller so it's a couple impedance pads that just have a small gap between them so the problem with and why you have you know you have you'll have um you know weights like scales that you can stand on you have smart weights those are actually fairly not accurate because it, go, it sends the electrical pulse all the yeah. way through your body. And so there's a lot of interferes and a lot of other thi- th- things that can cause absorption. So when we started doing it, you w- we actually wanted a much smaller gap that was a much more localized center place so that you could weed out a lot of what would be the interferers as to what would cause other things to change the electrical signal. So it was all contained within one, just almost kind of just a little puck or kind of the size of a, a large, about the size of what would now would the Apple Watch or the Fitbit, but kind of all self-contained in there. So it's a fun project and it's, you know, just as a catch you up to a bit to where it's at today. So I bought it out or bought out the, or bought out all of the partners, started the business. My dad uh, helped me out on it. We did it for a side hustle, which I always think of side hustles as really just a second full-time job brought on an investor, um, did that or or got to the point, we actually were testing it with some NFL teams, we were testing it for some college teams and getting some traction and we were kind of getting to the next point where we would need to have the next larger amount of investment to really productize it, take to the market and get it all ready. So as we were in the process of doing that, one of the people we were actually courting was in a different area, was with the medical devices, but it was for diabetes monitoring. So a lot of the same technology we were developing for hydration uh, very well applied for a diabetes monitoring for diabetics and for watching your glucose and, and sugar levels so we actually rather or, or pivoted merged with that company did some licensing deals and other things and now that or the what started out as hydration is now a uh, diabetic monitoring uh, company that mm. uh, has some wearables to help you watch your your glucose levels
1: that's a really interesting point though to go from having, you know, your your prototype and then merging with another organization to try and provide some additional functionality. Getting to that next step of actually having something that's productized is really hard. How how did you go through that that process?
2: It still feels like we're going through that process, but no, I mean <laughs> There was, you know, first thing is we just got a down-and-dirty, ugly prototype that was a big box that had lots of wires and resistors and other things and hooking up to a computer, and it was collaged together, and it was ugly. But it was more of, hey, we're going to figure out something that works, something that to test the concept to see if, while it may not be pretty, if there's at least a reason that it might work. And so that was, you know, well before manufacturing, but that was, you know, when we got to that level. And then after we got kind of... The very concept to say, well, it may not be perfect, but we at least have an inkling. This name, this looks like it may work, and this we got positive indicators. Then we refine the design again, not for aesthetics or for consumer, but more for just let's make it so that we can get better data, better readings, and get it, make it more usable. Once we got to that level, then it was a matter of trying to figure out how to design the product so that it would actually fit within a wearable and and actually be workable within something that people could carry on on the wrist and that introduced a whole myriad of different you know I don't know issues of complications in the sense that battery life. You know how do you you know that mm-hmm. is the bane of existence for every wearable out there is how to get enough battery life for what everything you want to do. So we had to deal with that. And you had to deal with making it compact. You had to deal with getting all the sensors in there and doing a display and getting it positioned correctly because ours, as opposed to most wristwatches, all of our sen- or all of our um, sensors are on the bottom of the wrist. And so how do you get the mm-hmm. sensors on the bottom of the wrist when most watches just have a wristband that's just plastic that doesn't really have anything in it. So that was kind of the next step as to now how do we take this idea that we've tested out and theoretically it works and shows that we can actually get data and put it into a product. And that's an iteration. We had the we had what was really the first proto or more than a prototype, a first concept that we could take out to the market, but it wasn't as pretty as we wanted. And that was about the stage saying, hey, what we were getting feedback from a lot of the NFL teams and athletes and other things was. This is a cool device, but I would never wear it because it doesn't look cool enough. I have to have that kind of that bling factor when we found in when we got into athletes and, you know, somebody there in college or at NFL or other collegiate levels is that they wanted something that not just worked, but looked cool as well. And so that was kind of where we got to when we shifted to the medical market. It was kind of the opposite. They wanted something that was didn't look like it was invasive in their lives and didn't look like it's they didn't want to be identified as hey i have diabetes hey i have a medical issue they just want to go about their lives so we had to kind of reshift how we did the product to make it look more like just a standard watch that they didn't look intrusive so that's kind of where a bit of an evolution from a big box it it was just ugly that worked to now making a product that people would want to buy
1: it's quite difficult, though, I guess, isn't it, when you've got because i I'm going through a similar scenario with a startup of mine and you've got like a complex product that is a mess of wires and marbles and valves and all sorts of random stuff, and you've got to try and have the confidence that yeah, I am going to be able to get it into something that is going to be palatable as a package. Um, you know, that, that must've, t- how, how did you approach that sort of, you've got this massive box, all of these things sticking out of it and you go, no, no, at some point, this is going to be an attractive watch that you could wear. Um, was that a nerve wracking <laughs> thing to go through and how did you go through it? Did you fi- have to go and find people cause the, to, to help you put it together? Cause I imagine your, your electrical engineering degree probably came in handy with this, but you know, did you have to go and find people to, to, to figure out how to package it properly?
2: Um. Yeah, uh, the short answer is yes, and I would say maybe just one kind of thought on that is what, or at least my ex- or personal experience is, it's a lot easier for engineers and those type of, that have had either, whether it's that mindset or that educational training or combination of both, to conceptualize and visualize, okay, we can make this smaller. The Honestly, the, the people that have a much harder time is the marketers, the salespeople, and the investors in the sense that mm. unless they can actually see what it is and wh- how it works and exactly what it will be. To make that leap from, hey, we've got this ugly box over here, but trust us, we can make it smaller. To there say, no, we have to see that it's smaller before we want to, you know, before we can sell it or before we can invest. So for me, it mm-hmm. wasn't that hard of a leap to say, okay, you know, we've got this, yes, it's much bigger, but a lot of what we have in there is extraneous components. We haven't optimized it. We haven't put it on a, you know, a small printed circuit board. We haven't got as small of components as we can. We are just trying to do it. So for for me, it wasn't, but then to go, so then it was kind of the step of, okay, we kind of took the first pass at it what do we not need, what can we tear out of that, what can we remove and what can we make sure that, you know, anything that isn't needed and what can we do to optimize and make it as small as we can for the first pass through as engineers, and then we went out to the, uh, you know, to other vendors and people had experience to further miniaturize it to a specific to wearables and had experience there. So it was kind of an iterative process to a first we said, OK, what can we do to miniaturize it? What can we remove? What can we make easier and better? And then the second thing is now let's go to someone that can take it that next step further to take that information and, and put it into a wearable.
0: It's classic MVP. Mm
2: Yep, although I'll, I'll put my caveat out there, I always hate the word MVP, not because I don't understand the concept, but my always, whenever I hear MVP, and especially when I was in MBA school, it was always kind of like, put out the crappiest <laughs> product as quick as you can, and I'm like, yeah. I don't want to put out anything that's crappy, I want to put out... You know, within our constraints, within what we can, what we have the ability to do with budgets, timeframes, and that, let's put out the best product we can, rather than the crappiest product we can. So I always, I always, tell all my engineers, I hate MVP because it always in my mind is the crappiest product. But in yes, in the sense that we are putting out the the product that we want that can show that it works first before we go forward
1: and invest more money in it. I think people Mm. use MMP and all sorts of other. Yeah, trying to change it now. Yeah, minimum marketable (laughs) product. I believe (laughs) that one is, isn't it? You know, so again, that's something you might feel a bit more comfortable with. I I
2: like that. That, That's
1: probably better. I'm curious though. When you were going through this, like, what was the approach that you took in terms of like having? capital and actually selling the selling the product you know were you actually selling early versions of it and getting some a bootstrapping or did you have had you already secured sort of like venture backing or anything along those sort of lines as you were trying to to get this business off the ground
2: yeah i mean and it probably with a lot of startups i went in phases so the first phase was just mm-hmm you know, blood or sweat equity, let's get a, an I'll say MMP or MVP, but getting a <laughs> prototype that works to test the idea. And that one was just, We'll put in a few, you know, a few thousand dollars of our own money. We'll put in a lot of equity, we'll test it out. We didn't need any investor dollars at that point. So that was kind of the first stage. And I think that's always a good stage for people to start out with to why don't you test it out and actually figure out if before you put or put in all this money for marketing and sales and teams, investors and everything else, see if you what you're doing is going to actually work before you do it. So we that's the kind of the least approach that we take is let's see if there's something that we think will work. Once we did that, that's when we brought on our, 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 an investor, and it was really I'd say more of a business partner because it wasn't that he came on. He actually was helped manage. He helped do the testing. It was our product, so it was mm. more of an investor that, that came on, invested money, but actually came a partner of the business as opposed to just you know nor, or maybe a quote unquote a typical a investor, investor, investor. Or, yeah. venture capital just infuses money mm. and then is much more removed or takes a step back. So that was kind of the point where we got to where the, enough of the money and the capital that it allowed us to. Further test it to do that That first kind of initial run through. While it wasn't the, the prettiest product, it at least allowed us to miniaturize it, get the concept, and have something to show that people could then visualize and say, okay, I get the product. It works. You mm-hmm. can make it small enough. It can be sold in the marketplace. It needs to be made to look a little bit better, but at least gets it to that point. And then once we got to that point, that was where we were going out and saying, okay, to do a product that would be fully commercialized, it would be accepted in the commercial market, and do all that. It's going to taken a bigger tranche of money than what we currently have as a business and that's where we really what i would say engaged more of the venture Mm -hmm. capital and angel or more i guess we're past angel but more of the venture capital realm and happened to be that that's when we as we were engaging that came in or came across the other company that was in the diabetes monitoring and we said hey we got great technology, you have a great customer base, you have a lot of experience in building this type of company, we have a lot of experience in building the technology, why don't we do that? And so then we combined, um, merged together, built, or formed a new company, and then we went out and got the uh, venture capital to then build the, the, the product in a commercialized fashion to actually go out in the marketplace.
1: When you've gone through that sort of round of merging, bringing on investors, you know, throughout that process, you generally find some sort of dilution in your shares and in your uh, managerial scope, I say, or capacity or, you know, control level of control i suppose more than Mm. anything how did you deal with going through that process because as an as an entrepreneur this is i presume this is your first proper company after the gym bag idea so (laughs) you know this is quite a it's quite a thing to learn going through that that round so i mean how did you how did this work for you
2: um it was, it's tough. I mean, I don't. I say tough. It was a lot of good things, but it was. It was also mm. probably a bit of growing pains or a bit more ex- experience. It was my first time through, and you're right. It is all the things of giving up a bit of control. Now you're not the only one that's you know kind of managing and making the decisions. It's you know you have a lot more pressure because you've taken in a lot of investor dollars and you have to now perform. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, when it was, hey, this is a business. It's bootstrap. We don't have anybody to answer to. If it fails, it's going to be it's going to be terrible. But but at least we don't have anybody we're failing that you know that we owe money to, and that type of a thing. So, so those are kind of all the things that went through your head as you're making the decision. Yet you're saying, on the other hand. We either aren't going to make it in the marketplace or we're probably going to do a disservice to the company that we're not going to be able to really be or really be able to enter the marketplace to have any sort of impact that we want. So it's kind of one that we step back and say, yep, we're going to have dilution. We're going to have to give up some control. We're going to be bringing on other people that are contributing. But the alternative, alternative at this point is, is and that's probably based on the marketplace, because where I've done my law firm and I started, I didn't have that same thing. I can spin up a law or legal service, I have the experience, I don't need to bring on investors because I can grow it at with our experience as a service mm-hmm. business. When it's a product business, and especially one that's more expensive, has an upfront cost, you have to have you know inventory, you have to have product development, you have to do, you're not able to do it in the same spin up as a service business, but with the manufacturing, it's kind of one where if we're going to actually have a chance, we have to bring on those. Otherwise, realistically when we looked at it, it just wasn't ever gonna make it into the market and be able to actually launch it like we'd want to.
1: Yeah, it's this big difference, I guess, between, you know, a people powered business that's selling time and materials in the sense of like, you know, a law firm, you know, equally I've done the same sort of thing with a consultancy before, Sam's done a similar thing with an agency, digital agency, you know, so that's a very different thing from having a, a product business, like you say, where, you know, it costs a lot for inventory and it you know you've, you've got costs a lot for marketing and all that sort of stuff and it's yeah, and not even um, development
2: i mean you think about okay yeah. i'll give the contrast got my law firm there is no really no r d costs i mean it's getting a mm. if you getting your client base which takes some you know time and, and, and effort but you don't have you don't have to develop a new product you don't have to do engineering you don't have to do product you know you don't have to do molds you don't have to do circuit board design you don't have to do communications you don't have to go through the FEC or FEC or FCC to get or, uh, to get the standards for communication with bluetooth and for cellular and there's all these other steps and you don't have to go through the FDA to get medical or device improvements. and all of those things when you're in a service-based business, it's really, hey, I've got a talent, I've got something I can provide, and it's really you're selling your time and your hours, and so you don't have those. So in my mind, you know, if you're going through a service-based business, it's much easier to do it on a bootstrap, do it on your own and not take dilution. It is more difficult if you're getting into what is a truly a, a, product to, or a product that you're having to develop to do something that previously isn't just an off-the-shelf part. It, there's a lot more investment that, of hard dollars and time that you have to put in.
0: Mm-hmm. Assuming that's kind of mostly self-funded in the early days, then it's it's a few a few guys and gals getting together saying, "What have we got in our bank accounts?" Is that is that generally the vibe?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that it, you know, on, it, it's getting together, saying, "Hey, we we've got an idea." Of, you know, the, the and I'll infuse both with I see it with my business and with tons of the startups and small business I work with the law firm. Is it? People don't sell you or don't buy the idea. In other words, if everybody thinks if all I need is a great idea, and then people are going to pound or be, or be pounding down my door to come and buy it from me. And really, there are a lot of people that have really good ideas, but it, what what you get paid for is the execution. and So you have to take it by steps of actually executing on the idea to show that it's viable, to show that you can actually develop it, show you that you have the team behind it, show that you have the skills, to show that the market's there, all those things. And so you know, it's kind of that steps of invest what you have yourself then you maybe a lot of people do a friends and family round get some you know get it to a point where you can have a bit more farther develop and then either if you have it to that point where you can do a crowdfunding or a pre-sales or otherwise sell it i would do that if it's one that's more expensive that's Mm going to have a longer road and and more development that that's where you're going to have to get the the larger rounds
0: Mm, Kickstarter has opened up a lot of doors for that kind of stuff, isn't it? The, the crowdfunding aspect. It's um, it's an interesting proposition. Now, my
2: jaded opinion is I think Kickstarter was really great for the first few years of it out and it's now almost become a platform where people pre-sell products as opposed to a platform mm, right. where people buy, you know, where they help people. So it seemed like I used to yeah. love Kickstarter and, the, you know, there are other platforms and I thought, hell, hey, those are cool technologies. These are people that are trying to, you know, develop something. They need help. And now it feels like most of the products I see, these are really, really ready to go to market, and now they're just trying to get pre-sales to amp it up and to get the hype as opposed to actually needing the funding to develop a product.
1: Completely agree. Do you think there's any services that are out there to sort of replace what Kickstarter was when it was there originally? Have you seen anything in the market that is trying to give funding to those ideas like Kickstarter was originally?
2: (sighs) Um. Short answer is no, not that I'm aware. I would love it if there was, and I think that there's definitely a place for it. And I think that's where Kickstarter really got it, you know, its it start, and I think that's where it was. But it seemed like it evolved, and you see even big companies now on Kickstarter that are putting mm-hmm. out their products and are you know developing it. And if you really look behind the curtain, it's just they're using it as a pre-sales. The ones that I think are the interesting ones that at least kind of... Developed from the original crowdfunding is malware you can take an actual ownership or equity stake in a company. And I think those are kind of an interesting evolution. And so now you're rather than, you know, just. Pre ordering a product and saying, Hey, we'll give you the money up front. Now you're saying, rather than that, I want to actually be vested and own a portion of the company. It's usually a very small, micro, you know, micro portion, but it's an interesting concept. So I think that one, there's a few different Mm -hmm. ones that are kind of more of those platforms that kind of feel more like it's getting back to investing in the company and the idea and development as opposed to the, you know, just pre selling a product. But it, I don't know of any that I think, oh, those are the ones that have kind of gone back to that core of where crowdfunding started. I'd, I'd love to see it, but I don't know of any that are just are kind of returned re- are really back to
1: that. Cool. Well, we're onto something. We found a gap in the market. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, returning back to the, uh, the, the evolution, the timeline of this, um, uh, of this product that you were developing, had you started the law firm before or is the law firm something that you started up in parallel whilst you were doing this?
2: So this was about or when this company started, if you are to take, you know, it was about 10 years ago when that company started, you know, uh, that's when I was finishing up MBA law degree. So I was there as a company, I, I graduated and I was saying, okay, this is a, a cool company. It's a cool idea. I'd like to pursue it, but we don't have the funding. I can't make this a full-time job. You know, it's not going to be one that's going to, it doesn't have the funding and the sales and the support. So I went off and was doing, I worked for some other law firms and was doing a full-time law degree, or full-time lawyer as I was pursuing this on the side. And again, I probably put in 40, 50 hours on the, being an attorney and another 30 or 40 hours doing the side or hustle. So it was really two or 2 full-time jobs, mm-hmm. one of which I got paid and one of which was uh, hope, or betting on the come, so to speak. And so as I was doing that, originally it was I was doing the law, or law, being a lawyer as a full-time and developing this on the side, And I don't know that I've ever given that up because as you can see, I'm still having my own law firm. But I really got, so I got in about Mm -hmm. six years. That was about the time that we, we pushed it far enough. We got the investors, we were getting ready to put it out in the marketplace. We'd for lack of a better word, bootstrapped it, even though we'd had an investor that came on, we didn't really have venture capital or traditional investors. And that was about the time that we were gonna do that. So kind of at that point, that was I was getting the itch to want to do my own law practice and do that as a full time gig and have more direction. And I also wanted the flexibility and the ability to pursue this business as a more full time endeavor. So that was kind of when I split off and did my own law firm was also when I kind of put a, a full time focus on this as well and merge those two things together. So still doing law full time, still doing that full time and I wouldn't have it mm-hmm. any other way. And I've also started a couple of their businesses in the meantime and I just love to, to be or my my passion and my or hobby is doing the the startups as a you know or startups as a, a full time gig. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's probably as good of an answer as I have.
1: Yeah, I'm just wondering when, uh, at what point did the two kind of almost come together? Because I suppose, you know, you've been developing some of this technology and, you know, you've got, you're now advising other people on... IP and how to protect their IP. You know that seems like an awful lot of patents that you developed then for the wearable technology. Is that, I mean I've noticed that so that does seem to be a thing in the US. There seem to be a patent for pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> is that a, do do you get involved in patents across the rest of the world? So
2: kind of yes and no. So the way patents work is you have to file it in the given. Or you have to have an attorney file it for whichever given country that you're filing it into. Mm. So. We have clients, I have clients that are from the are from outside the U.S., whether it's Europe. We have some that are in Europe, some that are in Japan, a couple that are in China and different areas that will file into the U.S. And we'll help those clients. We also will help clients that are in the U.S. based but want to have protection outside of the U.S. And so a lot of times we have some clients that are also in different types of technology, but in the medical industry, and first, or the biggest market for medical devices is in the U.S. Second biggest, or second biggest market is in the EU, and so they'll file into the EU. So we'll help them. We'll prepare everything, and then we'll have. Attorneys that we know that are each of those specific countries that will file into the into the EU, um, take the documents and information we provide and file it into the EU. So you do have a pretty good. U.S. has probably the biggest market for patents, but there's quite a bit. Europe's a huge market. Uh, A lot of patents go are going on in Europe. Quite a bit going on in Japan. China's kind of the Wild West. You know, Australia and New Zealand have a reasonable amount for their population size. And so they're they're certainly outside the U.S., but the U.S. probably... Where it's a lot of, you know, the hub for a lot of technologies, if you think of, you know, consumer goods, whether it's, you know, iPhone, whether it's laptops, whether that there's a lot of where you have Silicon Valley and others that are doing a lot of innovation in the technology realm, it tends to overflow into technology.
1: I mean, in my experience, because i I'd done some work with Amazon in the past before, and I noticed that you've done some stuff with uh, with Amazon as well with helping them file patents. There are a lot of patents in Amazon, and in fact, they they give you a little prize, a little puzzle piece, a uh, a sort of plastic puzzle piece that sits on your desk if you've got a patent Um, or if you've got a patent applied. And then they, they change it into a colored puzzle piece. If you've actually had the patent approved, it seems like there's a lot more smaller patents for lots and lots of different things in the US, though, than there is in in sort of traditional companies in the United Kingdom, for example. I'm curious, is it is it to do with the, the landscape? Because, uh, I don't know, is is America more litigious than the United Kingdom? <laughs> <laughs> I think you certainly do have a, a reputation.
2: <laughs> the EU isn't that far behind, both in the number of patents filed mm. as well as uh, being litigious. So US and Europe are probably the two most, but it's probably one where, you know, is is a bit baked into the culture in the sense that, you know, first of all, if you go to venture capitals or angel investors, especially your venture capital, one of the first questions they're gonna ask is what's proprietary about your invention or what your business is doing. And then the second question is how are you gonna protect that? And you know, mm-hmm. the you know, if you don't have patents, if you don't have any, you know, trademarks or any intellectual property. Then your answer is, well, we, we may have a big customer base and we are going to out-innovate or keep ahead of the marketplace, but if you're a smaller business or a smaller startup, they're gonna say, yeah, but you got these other big businesses, they got a lot more money, a lot more assets, they can kind of you know crush you, so to speak, if they were to put all of that resources behind it. And so I think that it's kind of baked into there where there's an understanding of, one of the ways that you can keep your space in the market blocked out is with intellectual property with patents or if you're a Mm -hmm. brand company with the, you know, with trademarks and other things. And so I think where it was kind of baked in with, you know, first patents were filed with, you know, Benjamin Franklin and founding of the country kind of a thing. And it was just kind of one of those where this is a good way. And I would say it was kind of baked in with the, you know, the little bit of the culture of the U.S. is, you know, we want to, we want to motivate and inspire innovation. We want to or have companies or people in that that are willing to invest in companies that are willing to do it, be independent. And we in order, we offer the system that gives you a bit of proprietary, a bit of monopoly such that it motivates that. So I think it's probably built in since the founding of the country of kind of the self-starter, independent, want to do our own thing and also want to motivate, um, be able to innovate and be able to or create things that that was kind of where it's, it's it is kind of grown from there. Whereas, if you take other countries, kind of like a China, they, there's a much more, of, and they're changing, and they're, they're getting you're, you're kind of their cultures evolving for but a long period of time. It was kind of the idea: of you can't own it, you can't own an idea. It's everybody is you know, contributes to it, everybody is involved with it. You build on a lot of others, so you really can't own an idea. You kind of own an invention. So they really didn't focus on intellectual property. So if you're to take kind of those two dichotomies. U.S. was saying, hey, we're independent. I can own what I when, if I put my blood, sweat and tears, time, money and effort into something, I should own it. And, you know, China for a long period of time was much more of, hey, we this is something that everybody contributes to, that everybody should have ownership in and you really can't own it. Therefore, we're not going to focus on intellectual property. So I think that that's kind of where the U.S. as opposed to other countries is kind of evolved.
1: And so between sort of the US, say UK, rest of the world, et cetera, if I patent something in one country, I'm going to then need to do it across other countries. Do you ever have, do you ever come across like issues where you've tried to patent something in one country, but it's actually already patented in another? And, you know, can you still have one patent in one place and not have it in another place? I mean, how does that work out?
2: Yeah. So the short answer is no. <laughs> in the sense that the sh- uh, is, When you file a patent, whether it's in the U.S. or basically any other country, they do a worldwide search. So the standards for patentability is, is it previously been invented? If it's already been invented, you can't get a patent on it. That's not just within the U.S. I mean, if somebody else invented it in Europe or in Japan or in Korea or in China, anywhere in the world, if somebody else has previously invented it, you can't get a patent on it. So when the patent office goes and does their examination for patentability, they look across the whole the, the whole country. So it doesn't mm. matter which. Now you do have different countries that are more or less aggressive in their examinations and applications of their standards. Meaning, Europe is actually harder to get a patent on or patent in typically than the U.S. They just are more rigorous and they how they they have a bit different standards, how they do their examinations, but more or more difficult. China's easier to get a patent in, Japan's kind of similar to the US, is a little bit easier than the US, so each country has a bit of a different rigour, but as far as you know, whether or not you can get them in one country versus another, generally if it's been invented anywhere, you can't get a patent, or you can't get a patent on it if it's already previously been invented.
0: What, why have this separation then? Why not have this global body that just files, that authorises patents and all the rest of it, if, if you're looking across continents and, and all the rest of it anyway?
2: That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I would say the biggest difficulty is try and get all of the countries in the world to agree on anything. It's going to be difficult. I mean, Mm. you think the UN is probably the closest we've ever gotten. UN is by far not a body that ever agrees on anything. And that's as close. So I think (laughs) that one of the difficulties is trying to get a all of the countries in the world to agree on one set of standards and then how do you go then how do you go about the or or defining who who gets to enforce those standards you know do you how do you not bias it from one country to another because you'll have one country that want to tip the scales and say well we want it to be more favorable to our country or we want it to be more favorable to your country and so i think that That's one of the different issues. And then, you know, how do you split up the money that's paid? And so, you know, interesting fact in the US, one of the, I think the only governmental body in the US that actually makes money is the patent office because you actually have to pay fees. And so it's a money generating or part branch of the government. So now who gets it? I think there's just so many standards. And then the other difficulty is every country is in different points of development as to their patent process. US is pretty well established. Europe is pretty well established. China is not very well established, they're getting better, but for a long period of time, they basically just disregarded the patent system and said, we're gonna copy whatever we want. And so they're much more, less mature in their system Japan is reasonably established, but every in Africa, not very well established. Some parts of South America, pretty well established. Other ones not. So you've got all these different countries as to what or what systems they use, how well established they are, how do you get to agree on, how do you mm-hmm. divide up the costs, and all of these different things. And I think it just makes it so difficult to ever get or difficult to ever get enough of a countries to come together to make that sort of agreement that it's just never happened. It'd be great if it could. I just don't know that it will ever happen just because no. it seems like no countries ever agree on anything to the point to get
1: anything done. Mm. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we've seen uh, countries have probably retreated more from the global stage in the last sort of five or six years or maybe eight years now, I suppose it, it's been, isn't it? I think actually from a patent perspective, you're pro- probably uh, the most globally organized by the sounds of things. <laughs> it sounds pretty, yeah, it sounds pretty tight. <laughs> I think it's at least, you know we have figured out a way to to make a system
2: that works, that works pretty well. And so I think that's probably the other impediment is, hey, if we have a system that works pretty well, that if people want to get protection in given countries, why shift? Why? Why try and fix something that's not broken? In other words, it may not be perfect. There may be areas to improve, but you have just as likelihood of creating a much more disarray and much more difficulty. And then the question would even be: Is okay now? What do you have now? Let's say you have all these patents that have only been in filed in given countries before we created the new system. How do we all mesh those together? And what we do? And I think it's just one where they're saying. It's not one where there's enough of a motivation. It's not that there's enough of an issue that or motivation to try and make this all come together. We'll leave it as
1: is. And so, how does it work on the other side then, when it starts to come to uh, challenges, patent challenges, and things like that? Do you know how, how does that work across different uh, um, different countries? And do is that something that you get involved in as well?
2: Um, I get lightly involved. So I'm more so on more so on the getting the patents, getting the trademarks. Mm-hmm. Enforcement is kind of a different skill set. So I've been in a support role. We have a litigator in my office that does that a whole lot more than I ever do. But the short answer is, is you know, each patent covers you for your given country. So if I file in the US, it covers anything that's sold in the US, it's manufactured, it's made, or it's imported. So That's anything that's within the US borders that people are selling a product for, your patent covers. So if I had a US patent, if somebody else went over to Europe and made the exact same product and I didn't have a patent in Europe, They're perfectly fine. They're within their rights to sell in Europe. They can stay in Europe. They just can't ever come into the US and port into the US because Mm -hmm. they'd be infringing on those. So it is country by country specific. Usually what you'll find with a lot of companies is that they're going to be, there's gonna be either, either they're all going to be in their one country. So a lot of countries, hey, 95% of my market is in the US. All, that's who I'm gonna be selling to, that's where I'm gonna be, my customer base is. I don't really care what other countries are going to be doing because it's not a big enough portion of my market, either because I don't have the advertising dollars, my customer base is, or is that country specific, or whatever the the point may be. But then you'll have some, some companies that are saying no, Few different countries or when I used to do, you mentioned Amazon or I did Red Hat or Intel. Mm. Then they're saying, hey, we've got a lot of countries and they'll file into each one. But it is country by country specific that for each country you have the patent and you have to enforce it in that given country.
1: I mean, from the business side of things, well, the the, uh, the startup side of things, when did, when did these companies, these startups, these businesses, when, what sort of stage of their life cycle do they normally come to you? And is it when they're thinking about, you know, we want to protect something, we want to know, do we have anything we can protect? You know, what, what sort of phases are they, are, they, are they
2: at? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, for our clients and backing up, I think to answer the question. So when I started my law firm about three years ago, it was... I looked. I stepped back and said, what are the types of clients I like working with that I enjoy that are fun, that are the types of, if I could choose my ideal client, and I said, you know, when I look at it, well, I've done the Amazons, I've done the Intels, and that's great From people who recognize the companies I work with. It's fun to have their name recognition, but when I step back and say, I really like working with the startups and small businesses, they're the ones where you get to have more strategy with them, have more impact, you get to work with them more closely, you know, as, as opposed to being a very small cog in a big wheel where Amazon has tens of thousands of patents, and this is a very small one that I'm working on. A lot of times with the startups and small businesses, this is what they're doing. They're one or two patents that are really focused on protecting their business. So my company focuses on startups and small business, so I usually get the much early stage. It's usually, if it's if you just have an idea and you think, oh, is this a good idea? You're probably too early for a, a patent, to go get a patent on it because really where you need to have your invention is before you can go get a patent on it. Is you have to call, do what's called conceptual reduction of practice, and what that basically means is you have to be able to explain your idea to a level to someone else in the industry that they'd be able to understand it and be able to replicate it. Not that you actually have to build it, but you have to be able to explain it to that level. So if all you're at is the idea stage of hey, I've got a, I want to go make a perpetual motion machine. I think it's going to be the world's best, you know, or I'm going to go cure cancer. Well, I'm going to go get a patent on curing cancer. I don't know how I'm going to cure cancer, but if I can get a patent on curing cancer, that would be great. You can't do that. You have to actually be able to explain to that level. So it's usually one or two steps after the idea stage to where they've actually worked through the details, what their product is, how it will work and flesh it out to that level. And then they'll start to approach an attorney and say, okay, I put in a bit of time, money and effort, blood, sweat and tears to figure this out before I go into the marketplace, before I go expose my idea out to everybody, I want to make sure that it's protected. Now, how do I do that? And that's about the, the time frame that we'll start to engage with them and, and start to help out.
0: Presumably you have to share it with someone you trust because if you go and validate your your hypotheses and then they turn around and take your idea uh, and run off with it, you know, you obviously you don't want to go sharing your idea or your your idea for a patent, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true throughout all of the stages of a business in the sense that even if (laughs) you have a patent, if you go share your idea with someone that has a lot more money and backing and ability to go and rip off your idea, I mean, you take, you know, some of the big companies, and we won't name name specific names so they don't come and get mad at me, but there are big companies in the industry that have reputations that you have a good idea and they see it, they're going to rip it off, and and so, you know, they're going to just simply copy it, and they figure they have more money, and they can go and enforce it, they can sue you, and they can stretch it out in court, and so I would say that that's a truism for any startup or small business, you have to be careful who you share your idea with, whether or not you have a patent now. Patent obviously gives you better protection, gives you a fallback, but you should be gauging who you are you can trust and how you're going about your business such so, that so you don't open yourself up to un- unnecessary risks. There's always going to be a risk, but you try to mitigate those risks to the much as possible. That includes patents. That includes who you tell, how you tell them, what you ex- disclose,
1: and at what point in time. Especially if you're, you know, so happen to be friends with someone like Elon Musk, you know, just don't share your ideas with (laughs) them. You'll steal. Although Elon
2: Musk, I tend to think that he's usually he's one of the companies that doesn't seem to, or he's one that their company tends to share their or share not enforce their patents and be much more opening or open to letting startups and small businesses use their patents to leverage their company. Mm. Versus if you're to take more of someone like the Amazons and the Intels and other ones or Apples Mm. and that, they tend to be a lot more litigious and a lot more difficult it can be more difficult sometimes they're great to work with sometimes they're not
1: so do you have ever have like firms come to you and say look we've got this great idea we've been working on this sort of thing and really what we'd like to do is we'd like to get uh, a patent for it and you've basically had to go well you actually can't patent that
2: um <laughs> occasionally not not frequently occasionally that happens usually what we'll do is you know if somebody comes in with their idea if you spend a lot of time money and effort to solve an idea you know beyond just the idea stage of hey wouldn't it be cool you know, if we get those type of the uh, people in, we'll weed them out and say, well, just out of curiosity, have you Googled this? Or have you looked it up and see if anybody else has actually, because some of them it's like, I know I've seen this before. I think I've already bought this before. I'm sure, pretty sure it's out there. Why do you spend, you know, have you done any research? No, but I'm not aware of anything. Well, go spend 10 minutes. But if they get beyond that mm-hmm. point, you know, beyond just the Google search, and if you put in a lot of time, money and effort, it's usually not the, you don't have anything to patent. It's more of what scope of patents can you get? In other words, you know, if You, you can't just patent the idea of, hey, I'm going to make a television because televisions have already been out there. They've already been out there for a long period of mm-hmm. time. But now let's say you put a whole bunch of time into making a thin screen and you're the first one to do an LCD display that makes televisions much thinner and, and less power consuming and they can be bigger and you know and all those things. Then you're saying, okay, I can't get all the televisions, but I can get a, this area of technology and this portion of it. And so it's usually much more of a discussion of what scope and how broad you can get as opposed to is it dead in the water and just not, not working pursuing occasionally those pop up but they're more the exception because if you know if if you're going to invest a lot of time money and effort blood sweat and tears take other people's money hopefully you've done your due diligence to the point you're saying okay i don't think there's anybody else out there that's doing the same thing otherwise there's no reason for you to go in and do or you know to create or to start a new company to do something that's exactly the same as what others have already done
1: I've noticed that you do strategy sessions as well. Is that a more, we're going to spend, have a longer term investment or a longer term um, engagement with you as an organization and help you to grow the business?
2: Um, kind of. So the reason why we do strategy meetings is the one of the biggest impediments, especially for startups and small businesses, is they're worried that they're going to go into an attorney, they're going to spend a few hundred dollars to ask them if they even need a patent or trademark. And their biggest fear is, is they're gonna come away and say, no, we can't help you. And now they, you know, with startups and small businesses, they have a, you know, they always have more things to spend money on than money to spend. And so they're always worried that we don't, we don't wanna go and spend hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars just to be told we don't need their service or they can't help us because we don't have that budget to spend. And so the strategy meeting is really more set up to come in have 15 20 minutes 30 minutes talk through what you're doing strategize figure out if we can help you what the time frame might be what those budgets might be so you can say okay maybe we can't help you today but what you should be thinking about is in six months when you hit these milestones this is what you should be planning on doing and this is kind of what you should budget for or hey you're already way behind the eight ball you should have been doing this six months ago and here's what you need to do to catch up so it's kind of a for a, a, a non-billing free session where they can come in kind of go through what they're doing with their business we can answer any questions they have and help them to strategize for what they either should be doing now or planning to do in the future so it's kind of removing that barrier mm. of them being worried that they they're going to come into an attorney spend a whole bunch of money only for the attorney to tell them they can't help, or can't even help them out
1: yeah because i noticed on your site as well you've also got a whole lot of diy options as well the snap legal stuff
2: yeah, and so that one's that one's a, a reasonably recent project as opposed to three years. That one's been over the past few months, mm. and really, that was set up. Now, I'll be the first to say, uh, attorneys are absolutely worth, and whether it's us or any, if you have or us or any other firm, attorneys absolutely, if the if it's a good attorney, are worth their weight in gold type of thing. They really can infuse a lot of experience. But what we looked and said there are a lot of startups and small businesses that simply say, I can't afford an attorney, I just can't do it right now. And so they just go without, they just don't do anything. And oftentimes it's more damaging to their business because they don't have anything in place. They're going basically, you know, naked, so to speak, and without anything to protect them. And so the DIY products really to say, okay, if you're at the stage where you can afford an attorney, and I definitely understand, I've done my own businesses, I get where that, where you, or been through that stage myself, then let's at least offer the DIY products that so you can have something in place. It's probably gonna be narrower, it's not gonna be as robust, it's kind of gonna provide as good a protection as attorney does, but at least get you started, get something in place, and helps you to get down that road, so that you can, as your business continues to develop, you can have a foundation to work from, and then as you get that income, you can then just go into to engage an attorney. So it's kind of one of those to help the those that are earlier on that are bootstrapping that may not be able to afford an attorney to get something in place that's helping them out.
1: That's quite innovative though, I think, isn't it? Is that, is that a common thing available or is that just a project that you guys have developed?
2: Um, you know, there's others that have done DIY products. There's a Zoom and others that are, aren't law firms that haven't done it. Their, their whole mm. industry is we're the anti-law firm type of a thing. You don't need law firms. And I don't think that that's, that's not, that doesn't work either. And, and in the case that, mm. you know, having somebody that's detached for dozen, or not from a law firm that's purely automated typically doesn't work because you get to a point where you don't just want to do it all DIY, especially if your company does well. So as far as a law firm kind of saying, hey, we're going to help those out earlier on that may not otherwise be able to engage our services, it's the first law firm that I'm aware of. So I hope that it's innovative. It's something that I haven't seen a lot of law firms do. It was one where we honestly debated a bit back and forth and said, "You know, is this gonna eat into our customers? Are we gonna lose money? Is it gonna be something that's worthwhile? Should we offer mm-hmm. this, should we not? And we kind of, after those internal struggles back and forth said, you know, we're really, if we pull it back to our core, we're here to help startups and small businesses however we can. If they can't afford our services, we shouldn't just turn them away. Let's at least offer them a different alternative to help them to get something in place to help them get started. And so. I hope. I think it's innovative. Hopefully, it's worthwhile. We're we're in the early stages of testing it out and seeing it, how well it's received. But I think it's it. it hopefully, is one where we think will fit the or fit the gap or fit, or, fit, or fill a need in the marketplace that up
1: until now has really gone overlooked. Yeah, it's a nice idea. Do, do you have mm. a patent on that? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, so no, I
2: mean we. While it's a good business model, and I think a good concept and how we're implementing it, we probably haven't invented something that's patentable. It probably doesn't meet the standards Mm -hmm. of patentability. So if I could, I absolutely would. It probably isn't. So it's one more of it's a business model. It's the way we implement it. It's not one that we can Mm -hmm.
1: probably patent, or at least not yet.
2: But if I come up with a way that I could patent it, I definitely will. (laughs)
1: <laughs> we've we've talked to quite a bit about patents i mean there are other things as well that you offer so there's trademarks there's ndas there's uh, llc's as well can you talk us through some of those like what are what are they i mean i mean some of them i know but some of them i don't
2: yeah so there's if i were to say you know every business is different and there's different things that they will need uh they will need so patent. if i were to kind of walk through the differences and what or whether is a really quick overview Patents are for invention, something that does something that you create something that's a widget, a gadget, a software, it's hardware, it's something that you've innovated. Trademarks are going to be for brands. And so if you're thinking of a name of a company, name of a business, a logo, catchphrase, that's going to be trademarks. Copyrights are on the creative side. So if you do a book, you do a, you know, you do a podcast, you do a uh, movie, you do a video, you do a TV show, you do a sculpture, a painting, anything that's kind of on the creative side, you're going to protect with copyrights. NDAs are more of uh, not what are called non-disclosure agreements. That's protecting if you're gonna go out and you're gonna want to disclose your ideas or your information to people that you want to keep confidential. Then you'll use those agreements to protect their confidentiality. There are independent contractor agreements that are for, if you're hiring independent contractors, then you're gonna to wanna to outline what are their roles, what are their responsibilities, who has the ownerships of the th- or what they create and how all that plays out. And there are other ones, you know, LLCs and business formations. You know, if you're forming like an LLC here in the US, you're gonna to want to protect your personal assets so that if the, your business ever gets sued, if you ever have to declare bankruptcy or anything else, it's only for the business and people can't come and take your house, they can't take your savings or your cars or anything else. So there's a lot of different aspects. And so kind of as we broaden that out, we look to for provide the services that are for startups and small businesses for whatever their setup is. And so there's a lot of different things and each business is different. Some people don't need patents, some people absolutely need patents, some people need a trademark, some people need to get an NDA or get an independent contractor. So we kind of, that's a lot of, also we're circling back to where the strategy meeting is is not every business Mm. is the same and you should figure out what based on what your business what you need and those are the services that we try and offer
0: i'm curious to know where is that line then where is the line of saying you know because i have a company i've not trademarked the name or anything like that we have a podcast we haven't copyrighted it how wow there we go everything comes full circle in the end right (laughs) but you know Should we have copyrighted this podcast right from the get go, or is there is there a level of like, okay, you're investing this much, or you have this many listeners, or you've grown this many continents? Like, where's the line there?
2: Yeah, and if I had a bright line, I can just say once you hit ten thousand dollars in sales, there isn't a bright line. But the the way I tend to try and approach it and counsel others is if you if your business has gotten to a point and this can be whether it's patents or trademarks or copyrights or other things that if this were if somebody were to knock it off so let's say we'll take your brand as an example just as because it makes it easy let's say that you built a brand and if and when you start out if somebody else were to knock off your brand if you're a small a small podcast that's just getting going you would probably say I'm not, it's not gonna hurt enough if I really had to rebrand, if somebody else already owned that brand and I had to adjust and pivot, it's probably not that big of a deal. But now let's say you've gotten your podcast to 100,000 listeners and you get, you know, or 100,000 monthly downloads or whatever that might be, but we're saying, okay, now if somebody were to come along, copy our brand, that that hurts, that's an ouch, you know, it really does affect the business and we would want to have some sort of way to protect that and have a recourse, that's Mm -hmm. when you should be doing it. So I would, every business is different, but when you, if you're to step back and say, if somebody were to copy X, is it going to hurt our business? Is it going to affect us? And if so, then we need to make sure we have that protected so that when that happens, we have a recourse to it. So it's kind of different from each business, but kind of having that, would it hurt our business? Would it have that kind of ouch factor? And if so, then you should look to protect it.
0: So there is actually another podcast called That Tech Show, and they did a few episodes and then they've disappeared, right? Could we then trademark or or copyright this show even though they were technically first um we've now copyrighted it so and and they i'm presuming that they haven't i haven't looked into that but we we thought we'd take the name just because they haven't done anything since 2017 or 16 even you know where where do we stand with that
2: so I'll give you the standard lawyer answer is it depends, but I would give you a few uh, <laughs> few thoughts to it, because it would be one where I'd, to give you a full answer, it'd be longer than this podcast, I'd have to dive into it deeper. But the general answer mm-hmm. is, whoever comes, if, if two people are in business and nobody has a trademark in place, you have some common law, what are called common law, kind of inherent rights when you start to use a brand, if you're the first one. And so where that Mm -hmm. happens is, let's say they were the first one out in the marketplace, they are somehow continuing to use it, even though they're small and they may not post a lot, somehow they're still using the brand. If they haven't filed the trademark, they get to have protection for their geographic location where their actual customers or listeners are. So let's say they, and I'll just make up, let's say they're in Utah, just because I happen to be in Utah, and their whole, all their listenership, all their audience, all their customers were in Utah, and they hadn't really expanded outside of Utah. And then you guys came along after the fact, started your podcast, and you created a much bigger brand. You know, you've hit in all the states or you're hitting the EU. They can, because they were first, they continue to be able to use Utah as their place that they started. And you can't enter into the Utah market. In other words, they have the rights to the Utah market, those inherent rights. You, if you were to go and file a trademark outside of Utah, you would have the rights to everything else. So basically it means that you wouldn't be able to go into Utah, they wouldn't be able to go outside of Utah. Now, take a different scenario, and that's why I said it depends. If on the other hand, they started in 2016, they'd win for a couple of years, they stopped using it, they're no longer using it in commerce, they're no longer doing anything with it, they've now lost those rights, they have no, no longer have any inherent rights to it. And so if, if you guys are to go trademark it, even though you're the second to start using it because they were no longer using it and you are currently using it, you can get the rights to it if they were to start up again, then you would have the rights to it, and you could box them out. So that's why it kind of depends on the fact pattern as to who started using it, are they still using it, how are they using it, and then depending on those factors, yes, you could get protection and you could stop others from using it if they weren't if they had stopped for a period of time. Kind of answers your question, mm. but that's why I said it depends.
0: It's got me thinking. Anyway, maybe we need to <laughs> talk about this offline, line, Chris. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think that you know there, there is definitely a they started it first as opposed is, is, well you
0: know. i mean they're not using it they're not. well as far as i'm concerned as, as far as i'm aware they've s- just stopped using it so we are leaning onto that side yeah, yeah. of you know if yeah. they start using it again yeah. then we can take it on
2: trademarks back. and that's kind of the inherent because one of the questions people often ask is how long can you get a trademark for does it expire does it and the short answer mm-hmm. is as long as you continue to use a trademark if you registered it and you continue to use it, you can use it for as long as you want. So you think of biz- mm. businesses that have been around for a long period of time, Pepsi, Coke, Disney, other ones, I'm sure there are a whole litany of them, that have been around for a very long period of time. Because they've trademarked it and they've used, they continue to use it since the inception, they continue to own it. If on the other hand let's say Disney you know not wishing Disney but they go out of business you know that tomorrow they stop using it they no longer use it somebody else could come and claim that right because they stop using it they're no longer using it therefore they don't have the rights to it anymore so trademarks are one that as long as you continue to use it you can continue to have the rights to it once you stop you know, if you stop for a couple of days and you, then you start back up, okay, you're probably fine. But if you stop for a reasonable amount of time, a year or two, or depending on the situation, a few months or that, then it opens the door for other people to start using it because you no longer are maintaining or using that trademark. And therefore, somebody else can step in and start using it.
0: Interestingly. And so similarly, if they decided to file a patent or copyright or whatever, Trademarks. could they then go after us? Trade, Yeah, it would be... Uh, I thought you said copyright for trademark. Podcasts. It
2: depends on what you're protecting, and that's okay. brand name. So the name of a business, name of a product, name of a show, tag frame the tagline, that's all trade or that's all trademarks. The actual content. So, if it was mm. the actual podcast or recording, or a specific episode, or a, oh, an image, or you know something of that nature, that's copyright. So, if they, it could be, I guess, either or both. If it was for the name of the podcast, then it'd be mm. under trademarks.
0: So, if they came along right now, noticed, you know, oh, there's another one. There's another that texture or whatever. You know, this this not use Just using us an example. Could someone then file that trademark, having owned it? let's say 10 years ago could they then come after those subsequent people who are who are then who are now using something that they kicked the bucket 10 years ago or wherever it is 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 that something that's been done or possible or or so happened
2: a couple and i get it now these get into much longer detail (laughs) i'll give you a couple thoughts so general or the general principle with any of these patents trademarks copyrights the first person to file on a patent or on a trademark or on a copyright is always in the best position so whoever files first always have the presumption of ownership always has a better leverage point doesn't mean they always win but if my general advice is file first be the first to file and you're in a much better position now let's say that they Mm -hmm. they had started the podcast five years ago years ago they let it go they stopped doing anything they said oh we'd like to get going on it again they went and filed the trademark they got it registered because you guys hadn't registered it yet and then they come out to enforce it then you'd be kind of back to the scenario we said you guys have some inherent rights because they let it go in the meantime while they let it go you guys could keep using it in your current geographic location so let's say As an example, you had the whole EU market. Your podcast was wildly popular, and everybody in Europe across all the EU listened to it, but nobody in the US listened to it. Then, you know, or I'll do a better one because it'd be better to do state specific. Let's say you had all of Utah, California, New York. Those are the three places where your audiences were. Then you could keep using it in Utah, New York, California. But you couldn't expand into any other markets. So they would basically box you out from ever being able to expand. You couldn't go into any other country or any other states. And you'd be stuck with your current geographic location. So in a sense, you could keep using it, but you'd be limited on expansion. They would have their rights to everywhere out of the areas that you were at. So it kind of gives you that trade-off. So. Hence why I say it's the best to be the first to file because then you are lock in all of those areas that aren't necessarily up for grabs. And if nobody is using it right now, then you have all the areas, period.
1: I suppose that, that that's very similar to the sort of um, Apple Music versus Apple, uh, mm. well, Apple. <laughs> um, you know, trademark dispute where obviously the Beatles had, rec- had, had registered Apple Music, Apple Records in the UK. Um, and then I think there was a legal... Um, Writ that basically said that Apple weren't allowed to expand into mm. entertainment and media. And obviously they then did that with iTunes. Um, and then the whole uh, thing unraveled again and went, in, went back into court for 20 odd years.
2: Yep. And, and another example is going along with the Apple example is if you notice when they first released the Apple Watch, it was the Apple Watch, not the iWatch. They had the iPhone, the iMac, anything. Why didn't they do it with iWatch? It was because there was a copyright or copyright trademark holder in China that had the right to iWatch. And oh, so wow. China or because Apple was had a big enough China was a big enough market. They didn't want to have to bifurcate and, and, and China call it the, you know, the Apple Watch and everyone else called the iWatch. So they actually named it the Apple Watch because somebody already had that. So it is one where somebody else, even though Apple's a huge company, because somebody else already owned it before them, then they had to rebrand or go in a different direction and call the Apple Watch as opposed to the
0: iWatch. And ITV. And ITV ITV as well. Yep.
2: (laughs) So all sorts of things. So that's why generally if you're wanting to protect your brand easiest answer is be the first to, to protect it because it puts you in a much stronger position
1: well, that's really interesting oh. i'm i'm uh, a bit out of questions i mean have we have we covered it all devon
2: oh probably as much as your listeners could stand i could go on for hours <laughs> and, and bore you guys with all sorts I, of re- i
0: had a question actually go ahead yeah, like um, you mentioned briefly around, uh, and we spoke about it briefly around. You know, once you've got something, you know, established, and then you need to go out and obviously speak to people to to validate it and all the rest of it. You mentioned NDAs. Is that really the the key to actually once you've got an idea and you're you're starting to propagate that through the industry or you know whoever it is? Protecting your idea, protecting your kind of IP, I guess, is it stri- Is that mo- has to be done through NDAs?
2: Um, so, my opinion, and this is my opinion, NDAs are something that's nice to have in place, but I wouldn't rely on them. In the sense that NDAs, there's they're easier to get around, they're easier to figure out, you know, loopholes and anything else. And so, while would get an NDA in place is certainly better than not having one in place because it does have some limitations with confidentiality. It's not one where I would rely on too heavily. That's why ones that give you much better protections. If you have an invention, a patent has a much, a much stronger protection than an NDA has. If you're doing a brand or, you know, customer list or something else, get a, you know, either copyright or trademark in place because that has a much better protection. So an NDA is good to have. I would have everybody sign it, but I would also look and say, look at the trustworthiness of the individual because if they're wanting if they want to get around an NDA if they put enough effort and ability to do it they could same thing with you know other things and so i would get an NDA in place but i would also look to get some stronger protections in place as soon as you could
0: mm yeah nda's always feel a bit fluffy if i'm honest you know it it sort of feels like this just Almost as good as as your words, sort of thing. And uh, I can imagine a lot of our listeners who are who are building products or or have something out there, and, um, who who are seeking, you know, some 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 copyright or whatever. Uh, you mentioned having to share it around, you know, and getting that validation that they're probably nervous about people running away with their ideas or whatever. So um, basically, what you're saying is actually do your due diligence and and really. Ha- um look for trustworthy people to th- to then validate your idea to then subsequently apply for a patent right
2: yeah so if i were to almost do the order of priority do your due diligence and i would say that's across any business do your due diligence see if yeah. you think that they're trustworthy if they're going to, if they have a good reputation i would then get an nda in place and I, and either contemporaneous to that in parallel with it or shortly thereafter i would look to get stronger protections in place with a patent or a trademark or copyright mm-hmm. but i'd probably due diligence NDA and then do one of those in that order but you could also do them in parallel
0: Mm. and also again just thinking of our listeners do you see common I mean I I won't even I couldn't even know what this might what the answer might be here but do you see a lot of um, like startups going wrong in certain areas whether that's applying too late whether it's not covering all their bases like are there common mistakes that people are making when it comes to actually securing their IP
2: yeah, and one of the, the short answers is yes. Um, you know, the, the longer answer is, is that a lot of different types of intellectual property or ways to cover your business have different timelines and different deadlines that go along with it. So, I'll give you an example of patents because that's an easy one. With patents, once you put your idea out in the marketplace, and that can be you know, whether you offer it for sale, you put it up on a website, you do trade shows, you do presentations or anything, anytime you put it in the public, you get a one-year time clock ticking within which you can file a patent on it. Meaning if you put it out in the public today, you have one year within which you can file on a patent. If you don't, if you miss that one-year time clock, you've now donated your idea to the public domain, meaning anybody can do it. So the problem is I've had, I've had you know clients or potential clients that have come into the office and say, Hey, we've you know we've got a product. It's been doing well. We finally get in a position. We'd like to protect a patent and you know or get a patent protection. And then the, one of the first questions I'll ask is, you know, that's great. You have a good business. You know, just out of curiosity, how long have you guys been in business or how long have you been selling your products? And then I say, oh, we've been selling it for two or three years now. And then it's kind of the uncomfortable conversation of, well, that's great that you have a good product that is selling well, the business is going well. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to help you with this one on the patent side because you missed the window. It's already been out in the marketplace two years. So you missed that deadline. And so mm. that's kind of one of the things if there's one of the biggest big holdups and you know it's different with trademarks, different with copyrights, but almost across the board, there are different deadlines that you should be aware of that that's why it's better to earlier on go have that strategies meeting with an attorney, go talk with them, at least be aware of the deadlines and what you should be considering such that you don't miss those and and to the point where you either miss your window entirely or if you can fix it, then it's more expensive and it's more time time consuming and costly, much easier to know
0: those windows ahead of time. Mm, Yeah, that's fair enough um well i'm out of questions so uh, i think i think we're hit. we are hitting the hour there anyway so we won't want to keep you from a day but before we do go and, and to our listeners as well i think your website is absolutely fantastic it's full of so much information if people want to go and learn about all the different types of um protection they can have and copywriting and trademark there's lots of services like that um lots of videos and all that i i struggle to think of how we can you know have a discussion that does, goes into things that aren't cannot be found on your website because there's just so much there so congratulations on that very uh, very ahead of the game
2: well thank you no. If people want to reach, if people want to reach out, they want to check out the website, I'll give them a couple ways to contact me. If they want to contact me for that strategy meeting that we've talked specifically, have a one-on-one conversation and go through their business, they can go to strategymeeting.com. That links right to a calendar. You can grab day and time that works for you. We'll set aside some time and we'll have that conversation. So, strategymeeting.com for that one-on-one. Off. On the other hand, they just want to come out, as you mentioned, check out the websites, get some more information, watch our content, see what the pricing is, learn more about us, any or all the above. They can go to lawwithmiller, so just all one word, lawwithmiller.com, and that's an easy way to reach out, find out, uh, find out, do some initial information, and they can also find the strategy meeting on there. But that would be the two I'd pa- or pass along, strategymeeting.com if they want to grab some one-on-one time, lawwithmiller.com if they want to check out our website.
1: Can I just ask, how on earth did you manage to get strategymeeting.com? <laughs> I thought that.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm, that's you're actually not the first person to ask me that, and I get that asked more often than I would have ever thought. You know, it was one where I I started. It was, it was just pure, honestly, pure by happenstance. So I started out about three years ago, and it was one of the first things when I started. and I used to call them strategy sessions. Mm-hmm. And so, when I was like, oh, it'd be great, you know, because I do, you know, if you're talking with somebody or trying to remember, if I, you know, give them a young long URL, say go to or forward slash strategymeeting.com, dot com, mm-hmm. or it gets too too or too much of a mouthful, so I'm saying. Oh, you know, I'd love to go get strategy session.com. So I looked it up. It was already taken. So strategy session was. But then I'm like, what are other ways that we can do it? And I'm like, well, strategy, you know, we're doing meetings. What, what about strategy meeting? And I looked and just, it honestly happened to be available and I just happened to grab it at the right time. And so it was as simple as that. I wish I had more of a story to it. But it this one where strategy <laughs> session was gone. Strategy meeting was available. So I says, well, I'm going to grab that right now because it's a great way to it's a great one that's easy to remember. And that's about as simple as, as it happened.
1: It was meant to be, I think. So strategymeeting.com, that's fantastic.
2: It was mm-hmm. meant to be. And now I'm sure I would have never been able to get up it because it's uh, it, it's, there's, it's way <laughs> too crowded, but it was a great one to that grab at the time.
1: Well, thank you very much for your time <laughs> on the call. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
2: Absolutely. I had a great time and thanks for having me on.